Welcome to the Reimagining Prison Podcast. Over the last few years, I've had the pleasure to speak with corrections professionals, the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals, thought leaders, and many others who have had a vision to reimagine prison. In today's episode, we're going to take it back to a fan favorite conversation I had with our very first guest, Rick Ramish, who at that time was the Director of Corrections for the State of Colorado, now retired. This is a replay of this classic episode from 2018. You know, I'm convinced that the more we humanize our inmates, the better off the community will be, the better off our facilities will be, and the, and the better off our staff and inmates will be. Solitary confinement, should we use it? How should we use it? Does it damage people? Is it a necessary evil to protect those who work within a prison environment? Good day, everyone. We are pleased to have Rick Ramish, Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Corrections, as our guest today on the Reimagining Prison Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Dye. Rick has decades of experience working in numerous areas of the criminal justice system, and he was appointed to lead the Colorado Corrections Department in July 2015. Prior to Colorado, Rick was the Director of Corrections for the state of Wisconsin. Rick recently was the recipient of the Tom Clements Innovation Award and was Director Clements' successor at the Colorado Department of Corrections. And as most of you probably know who listen to this podcast, Director Clements was assassinated on his doorstep in 2013. Rick is a leader in correctional reform nationally and internationally, and he has been especially successful in reforming the use of administrative segregation within the Colorado system and he's going to talk about that with us today. Rick, it's good to have you on the podcast today. Good morning. Rick, I've read your bio. You, you've had an interesting career path to be a director of corrections, first in Wisconsin and now in Colorado. I'm not exactly sure of the timeline. I know that you started as a deputy at the Dane County Sheriff's Office, but you also went to law school after college. Which came first? Did you go to law school first, or did you take the deputy job first? No, I, I started as a deputy. I did that for 11 and a half years with Dane County Sheriff's Office, which is the county in Madison, Wisconsin. I, the last seven and a half of those years, I was an undercover narcotics detective. Uh, the last four of those years, I attended University of Wisconsin Law School. And I tell people I graduated on a Sunday. On a Monday, I joined the Dane County District Attorney's Office and was immediately given 500 cases. I used to call that trial by disaster. And uh, then was recruited and joined the U.S. Attorney's Office as an assistant U.S. Attorney, and then became Sheriff of Dane County for, was uh, appointed and then elected and reelected for four terms, and then uh, went into the private sector for a while. And after 9-11, I wanted to get back into government and ultimately ended up as the administrator of uh, probation and parole for Wisconsin Department of Corrections, and after a, a short period of time, became the secretary or the head of Wisconsin Corrections. What led you to law enforcement to begin with? You know, I when I got out of out of uh, college, I didn't want the desk job, and it, it, um, my father had been a longtime county board supervisor in Dane County, and so. Public service interested me, and I just thought it was a way of um, what was stressed in my family, always giving back to 
to the community and, and to the to the state. And so it just seemed to be a natural course for me to take. You, you said you were a narcotics detective. What was the connection between being a narcotics detective and your decision to go to law school? Well, um, you know, I, I went to college um, to go to law school, but uh, after, uh, well, in reality, what happened was after two years of college, I looked at my grades and I thought, oh man, I got to get going here. So I, I uh, put the uh, pedal to the metal, so to speak, and, and had to take some extra credits and was a, a bit burned out. And I thought I'd wait for a while before I went into law school, but I didn't realize it'd be until I got to my 30s before I, before I did attend. Going into the DA's office post-law school, it's interesting what perspective someone who has 12 years in law enforcement would bring to a DA's office. What was that like? Uh, surely you had a different background than most of the people who worked there. You know, um, I, I knew most of the assistants because of my detective work, and I it got to the point where I was, uh, even before law school, I was drafting my own search warrants and then would, would give it to um, the district attorneys to, uh, to approve. And it got to the point where they, they, in a way, thought I was part of the office anyway. And, you know, after testifying, I, who knows how many times I thought, you know, it'd be a lot more fun asking questions than answering them. And uh, again, I'd always wanted to, uh, to go to law school, so it just seemed to be a natural, uh, natural course of business. And I have to, I have to admit that that small piece of paper called a diploma. Uh, once I got that, my world just completely opened up for me. I would imagine that the sheriff's job was an elected position. Is that correct? Yes, it is. What was it like to submit yourself to the voters? I assume for the length of time that you served as sheriff for Dane County, that you would have been involved in multiple election cycles? You know, it was, um, at that time in Wisconsin, it was two-year terms, so you were constantly campaigning. And it's a whole different story, but I ran as a Republican in one of the most liberal counties in the United States. And for whatever reason, the, the voters uh, liked me and liked the job I was doing. And, and of course, my family had been in Wisconsin for over 100 years, so... Uh, it was a it was a fascinating experience. I really enjoyed it. I remember being at an ACA convention some years ago. There was someone obviously from the district attorney's office. He had a T-shirt on. On the front of the T-shirt was the name of the DA's office. But on the back was this phrase, the real public defender. I thought that was a bit amusing. But for yourself being both on the DA side and for many years on the correction side, and you deal with this tension of over-incarceration, You've lived on both sides of that fence. How would you compare what you thought as a younger person in the DA's office and later in your career on the correction side trying to deal with folks who are incarcerated? You, you know, um, I, I always have been fairly hardcore law and order, and I, and I still am. But when I started as a, as a young deputy sheriff, um, to me, everything was, for the most part, black and white. And as I continued in my careers in the criminal justice system, um, learned that you spend most of your time working in the gray area. And uh, 
you know, it changed the way I thought about a, about a number of things. And one is that there's always another side to the story that you hear. And, and the other is that um, people do have the ability to change. And I think it, all of those careers help prepare me for my positions in corrections. Rick, when you say you spent most of your time in the gray area, would you define that? What would be the gray area? Well, I mean, there's those that that commit crimes, and there are there, there are criminals, and I there's a there's a difference, and and of course, you know, it's not always right and wrong. It's those that were, for instance, mentally ill that were we were taught to hold accountable to the law, and you realize that, you know, it's it's how can you hold someone accountable that doesn't even realize what they did and and that's the you know a societal problem so it was it was things like that where you always saw another side or whether it be for instance that someone was arrested but they were actually the victim of some just horrific um, domestic violence and they were they were defending themselves and, and things of that nature where you you tend to look more at both sides and understand that there always is two sides of the story. A couple of months ago, the Warden Exchange came to Denver for our third residency, and you came and spoke to our group. One of the follow-up questions I had on some of the content that you gave us reflects on this. You said that being tough on crime and being smart on crime isn't necessarily the same thing. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's... It's very easy, and it was, you know, easy as a as a law enforcement officer and as a prosecutor to, you know, pound your fist on the table and demand justice. But justice comes in in many forms, and I, you know, when you, for instance, see that prisons are full and the crime rate is going up, um, you know, common sense tells you that if the prisons are full, your crime rate, should, if you're doing things correctly, your crime rate should be going down because all the bad guys are in prison. And when both are going up, that means something's wrong with the system. And so, you know, I'm a strong believer in uh, programs such as justice reinvestment and, and taking a look at, at something other than penalties and being a little bit smarter about how we go about doing business other than just locking people up. Another quote you made in Denver was investment in efficiency isn't necessarily investment in corrections. What would you say the difference between those terms are? How, how does one invest in corrections? Let me give you an example. I've visited the Swedish prison system and, and they've visited here. I've become friends um, with the director of the Swedish system. And in fact, this year's the first year we had an exchange of correctional employees, uh, they sent employees here and we sent employees to Sweden. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, I've said the European system, the main difference between European system and the American system is that they do invest in corrections and we invest in, in efficiency. And as an example of that, uh, you know, for Norway, for example, if you become a correctional officer, the day you're hired by the government, you go to school for two years before you begin work in a prison. Um, I look at, at the training for my officers, it's about four weeks, and I, you know, and that's an economic um, reason for that, and I think to myself, you know, how can I teach someone in four weeks to prepare them um, for people that they're going to be dealing with that have all these different 
complex problems that ended up with them going to going to prison. And you know, my largest facility is in Sterling, Colorado. It's 2,500 inmates. And when I walk through there and I look around, I think, you know, what the heck can I do with 2,500 inmates? If I had 2,500 nuns under one roof, they'd probably be fighting. I mean, it's just uh, where the European system is, you know, the for the most part, a lot of their facilities, the maximum capacity is about 500. Um, interestingly enough, the, the Swedish system, when, when the director visited here, he said, do you mind if I send some of my my union people here and I said of course not why and he said well we don't have many assaults and they don't um, but he said we had a fairly serious one a couple of months ago and the union is now demanding two to one staffing can you imagine what I could do if I even had one to one staffing here or one to seven or one to ten staffing I mean I could turn the world around in, in corrections but uh, we deal with dealing with efficiency you know I have I have one officer that may be in a in a uh, unit with you know 60 70 offenders you also told us we don't need to think outside the box we need to rethink the box how do we do that in our culture when the public informs what can and can't be done uh, within the system especially in the funding arena what are the barriers there and do you have any thoughts on how to overcome them well, I think Pew came out with a report. Now, this was years ago that, that the title of the report was basically one out of every 100 citizens in America are either um, incarcerated or have been incarcerated. And that started to get people's attention. And literally everybody knows someone now that's been um, in prison or, or in jail. And I think that's starting to get people's attention where you know, again, I'll go, I'll go back to the, the Swedish system where they have a uh, citizen population of about 10.3 million people. And the director there oversees everything, uh, what we would call the county jails, the state prisons, and the federal prisons. He has it all, yet they have less than 5,000 people incarcerated. In Colorado, uh, we have about 5.4 million people. I just have the state prisons and I have 20,000 people incarcerated. I tell people I met a lot of Swedes when I was over there, but they didn't seem a lot nicer than Coloradoans. Uh, the, the point being, of course, that um, we incarcerate way too many for way too many different reasons. And I, I think that uh, public's starting to begin to understand that. And even those that may be considered really hardcore law and order um, when you look at the, the money that's being spent on it um, and the fact that each one of uh, my peers, including myself, we run the largest mental health institutions in our states. You know, the, the false statement that we closed decades ago, our mental health institutions, um, all we did was change institutions. They, they left the mental health institutions and started that long walk from mental health hospitals to prisons. And it's time to reevaluate that and it's time to start thinking really um, do, is there a different way of addressing those that are nonviolent? Is there a different way of um, addressing those that, that are addicted? 77% of my inmate population are addicted to drugs, alcohol, or, or both. And you know we need to start taking a hard look at those types of things. During your tenure in Colorado, you've made a lot of changes 
in administrative segregation practice. And I know that you did a brief stay in ADSEG yourself. I'm curious to know how that happened and what you learned from it. Well, you know, I was mainly hired to uh, continue the reforms that my, my predecessor had started. And, uh, and of course, the most people in this business know that I got my job in the worst possible way. My predecessor was assassinated by an individual who had spent uh, about seven years in solitary confinement, had some mental health issues, and was released directly into the into the community, and ultimately ended up assassinating um, another individual, and then and then my predecessor. So, um, you know, I, I had mentioned that I distrust bureaucracies, and I've worked for them or, or led them for about forty years. And the reason I do is is things that shouldn't be okay become okay, and I. Um, you know, I've, I've asked my, my staff questions and myself questions. Uh, for instance, at what time did it become okay to lock someone in a seven by 13 foot cell for 23 hours a day for 20 years? And at what time did it become okay to lock someone in a seven by 13 foot cell for 23 hours a day that's severely mentally ill and letting the demons chase them around in the, in the cell? And certainly, when did it ever become okay to have someone in solitary for years and release them directly into the community? I mean, the common sense tells you that that is just, is just wrong. So when we started our reforms, we, uh, we were very transparent because uh, you know, it was a culture issue. We've been taught to do certain things for, for many years. And as, as I tell people, I have a great staff here. We were just teaching them the wrong things. And one of those was, was the use of, of solitary confinement. So as part of this newsletter, we let everybody know what we were doing. And of course had a large number of committees and complete representation across the department for changing policies. But as part of that newsletter, I thought, well, if I'm gonna get involved in this thing, then maybe I should walk the talk and of course, in my career, I've been in and out of seg cells for, uh, I don't know how many times, but I'd never spent three shifts in one as an inmate. And I thought, I'll go in and I'll um, take some notes and write about the experience uh, for internal purposes only. But when I got out of there, the experience affected me enough that I, once I wrote up my article, I thought this may have more to it than an internal newsletter. So I. Uh, gave it to an advisor to the governor and said, do you think there's there's something more here? And he said, definitely. And um, he said, where would you like it to go? And I said, well, the New York Times for the last several years had been covering the overuse of solitary confinement, but it hasn't really gotten a lot of traction. And I said, I, I think they might be interested in it. And of course they were. And I knew obviously when the, the day the article was coming out, but when it came out, the advisor um, from the governor's office called me and said, Rick, I've never seen anything like it. And I said, what? And he said, virtually every major city in the United States has reprinted that article. Operationally within the prison environment, you obviously have people who continue to be a danger to themselves or a danger to others. How do you handle those type of people after reforming your ad seg policies? Yeah, I mean, and that's a, that's a question that is asked um, many times. And I, I might add from the, from the time that I, I spoke to your wardens group, um, 
and, and now we are the only state in the nation that for the most part has ended the use of solitary confinement. We have um, a 15 day maximum punitive um, segregation, but um, the term admin seg or, or restrictive housing, extended restrictive housing, all of that is gone. And um, the results have been, have been remarkable. But uh, when I'm asked that question, my reply is this, is that we do have some incredibly dangerous people in our system, obviously, uh, every state does, but you can restrain, but you don't have to isolate. And when you talk to psychiatrists and psychologists that have spent years studying uh, and researching those that are in involuntary isolation and you, you realize the, the damage that is done to them, not just mentally, but physically, um, then you, you understand that you're getting away from your mission, which is public safety. And so, you know, we've developed um, programs where uh, at a minimum, those that used to be in solitary are out a minimum of four hours per day and they're, they're undergoing programming. But there are some that are still in restraints when that's when that's occurring, but the fact is that they're they're restrained. They're, they aren't isolated, and they're allowed to socialize. How have you brought your staff along uh, in this? I would imagine that you've encountered some resistance, some fear. Has it been a long process, or do people tend to acclimate when they see positive results? You know, um, that's another that's another issue that's often brought up is that well, you can't change culture. Well, we changed culture in less than a year and a half. And, and again, I, I applaud our staff for that. Uh, even those that were against it um, were willing to give it a try because I, I always said, you know, that the overuse of solitary confinement basically is so that a institution can be run more efficiently. If you've got a guy that's creating a problem, even mouthing off, uh, I call it the steel door solution. You throw them in a, in a solitary cell, slam the door and walk away. Well, you know, what that's doing is at best suspending the problem. It's not solving it and it's probably multiplying it. And so, uh, you know, when we started this, I, I one is that um, in many states and Colorado included was the seriously mentally ill end up in solitary because they were so um, disruptive. Well, again, that goes against our mission. So we were able by policy and then by statute um, prevent that from occurring where we can't put the seriously mentally ill in, in uh, isolation. And uh, we have two facilities that are uh, dedicated to those with mental health issues. Um, solitary is banned at both of those. And when originally, and, and when I when I did that, um, had one very good sergeant email my deputy and say, you're gonna get someone killed. Well, six months later, I was out there with a uh, professor that was um, from Cornell that was taking a look at criminal justice reforms and wanted to see what we were doing. And that same sergeant was on duty and unsolicited, the professor asked the sergeant, so under these reforms have have things changed? Um, and the sergeant said, yeah. And the professor said, well, have incidences been reduced? And the sergeant said, yes. And the professor said, by how much? And the sergeant said, by about 
And so we saw our incidences go down. Um, instead of, of solitary, we developed what we call de-escalation rooms, which were rooms with um, murals in them. There were some stress relief materials in there, a blackboard if they wanted to write, uh, comfortable chairs, music uh, piped in. And uh, what we found was they, uh, a number of the inmates go into those rooms because they need a time out. And instead of exploding on staff or other inmates, they, they use those rooms. So we, we kept that data. And you know, one thing that's not talked about much is we read all this data about how severe and damaging it is for an inmate to be locked in a solitary cell, but there's not a lot of studies done on those working on the other side of the door. And you know, can you imagine going to work eight or 12 hours a day where you hear constantly people screaming obscenities, trying to throw things on you, banging, throwing their face against the door, and then you go home after your eight or 12 hour shift and your partner goes, how was your day, dear? I mean, well, it sucked, you know? I mean, it's, and it's horrible. And, and so all of that's changed now. I have um, a journalist from the New York Times uh, the last two days have been taking him through our facilities and the quiet uh, is remarkable. And that's not to say we still don't have, you know, fights on occasion and assaults, we do, but um, these facilities are, it's, it's absolutely miraculous what you see now compared to what it was. Wardens are the ones who lead our prisons. And in your opinion, what makes a good warden? What advice would you offer to someone aspiring to be a warden or what advice would you give to someone new in the position? Well, I, you know, a, a good warden to me is one that questions everything. Uh, they come up through the ranks and sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes that's not so good because again, it's where I made the statement, we have great staff, but we were training them the wrong, the wrong way. Um, it's to take a step back and take a look and go, you know, is that something we should be doing, or is it something we should be we should be changing? Um, you know, I'm convinced that the more we humanize our inmates, the better off um, the community will be, the better off our facilities will be, and the, and the better off our staff and inmates will be. And so it's someone that's willing to try things, uh, someone that. Uh, when they try something and it doesn't work, they say, well, that doesn't work. Let's, let's, let's try something a little bit different. You know, we've done some things here and, and a lot of it's been the wardens where, for instance, um, I was out in, in my large facility yesterday where, um, again, we've, we've stopped the use of, for the most part, solitary confinement, but it's a maximum security facility. And yet in one of the program rooms, um, we started a program uh, called Parents with a Mission. And with the point of it being is that you can be incarcerated, but you can still be a good parent. And part of this program is taking these violent, high-risk individuals. And by the time they're done with the program, with the class instructions, um, they're having uh, contact visitations with their families. Um, they're having luncheons with their families. And 
you know, when you become a better parent, you become a better inmate. And, and so we're, we're doing things like that. And I, you know, being from Colorado, and I think I might've mentioned this at, at uh, the warden's meeting um, that you were running, which was, you know, uh, I love to say this is everybody's heard the adage that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And that's not my philosophy. My philosophy is you pick the horse up and you throw them in the pond and they're gonna get some water just trying to get the hell out of the pond. And we have found that by taking our high risk offenders and putting them in our reentry programs and putting them in our, our different programs. And it's been, it's been working. Um, we're probably the only state in the country where we have hired by contract former high-ranking ex-gang members um, that developed a gang disengagement program that first they trained our staff and now they're holding courses um, for inmates that are in gangs and it's not leaving a gang but it's disengaging from criminal activity within the gang which is which is allowed it, and it, it's new, but right now it appears to be tremendously successful. So it's it's things like that, trying to trying to understand that um, whatever we're doing in corrections, we could probably be doing a little bit better. You know, you have said that we need to humanize inmates. So I'm assuming the opposite of that is to dehumanize. Do you believe that we have dehumanized inmates by some of our behaviors? You know, um, there, there's no question. And you know, when I made this made the statement that if I hear um, we need to think outside the box one more time, I'm going to gag. We need a different box. Um, here's here's what I say, which is, you know, we have 20 facilities, um, state institutions in in Colorado. Not one of them was built to handle the people that are sent to me. And I believe that just by the way they were built, they manufacture violence. And so when you look at concrete and steel, a uh, good example of that, you know, I walk into a cell and I see a toilet attached to a, to a sink. And I tell people, how many of you would buy a home that in your bathroom, your toilet's attached to the sink and you better hope that two members of your family don't want to use both at the same time. Or how would you like to, every time you wanted to wash your hands, bend over, bend over your toilet? Um, that's dehumanization. And and then um, just the fact that these, you know, these walls are built where people are on one side and, and inmates are on the other. Um, all of that is is to just remind them that um, they're being punished. That they're that they're done something horribly wrong. And I don't think you have to remind them, they know that. And, and so the more that we can get them ready to return to the society, because you know, regardless of whether you think what they did was right or wrong, you, you, you know, I have my feelings about people that have done horrific things, but I, I put that aside and I, I tell myself that 97% of them are coming back to the community and it's my responsibility and our responsibility to do everything we can to prepare them to be law-abiding citizens once they get back. Overall, how do you think corrections as a system has changed since the beginning of your career uh, until now? Well, you know, in, in Colorado, I, I use the term miraculous, but you know, we've had other states come to our 
maximum security facility. And as we're sitting there talking and they're looking around and they're not hearing screaming and yelling and noise and they're, they're seeing um, inmates treating staff with respect and, and it's, you know, they ask questions like, do you mean to tell me this is your maximum, one of your maximum security facilities? And, you know, my response is, well, you're sitting in what was formerly a supermax and we've repurposed it. Based on our reforms, we have a vacant 1,000 bed supermax prison. I'm, I, if I have the money and I don't, uh, but my vision is to turn it into a re-entry center instead of a supermax prison. So that's a 180 degree turnaround from, from where we were. And, you know, I am so proud of, of what the staff has done here. Um, you know, I invite so many people to come out and, and take a look at what I think a prison system really should be run like. And it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and the change in the staff that used to, used to work in solitary where now, you know, they look forward to um, talking more with the inmates and conversing with them and, and um, you know, being part of helping them to, to succeed. It's, it's just unbelievable. How have you personally changed over the course of your career in corrections? You know, um, I, I've had so many different jobs that I, and I'll be addressing a new recruit academy um, this afternoon. I address all of them, and you know, I give my my background, and I, I I say two things. I say one: now you've learned that I'm one of those that can't keep a job. Um, but I also say, you know, if I would have started my career in corrections, I, I'm pretty sure I would have stayed in corrections because there's so many different opportunities. One is that, um, you know, we have parole here. Um, you can advance uh, up the ladder in the, in the prison system. Uh, there's a great need for good, fantastic correctional officers and parole officers. But if they want to advance, there's all kinds of opportunity. We run the largest international academy in the United States. We have 38 countries coming to us now. Um, it's, it's just it's just absolutely fascinating. And plagiarism and corrections, except in the academy, it's not a bad word. You know, I tell my people to steal from anybody doing anything good, and we'll we'll take it. And um, but it's not just that. There's still plenty of room to reinvent the reinvent the wheel. You know if. If I, 10 years ago, if I would have stood up and, and, and said to the nation uh, in corrections that we're going to be ending um, solitary confinement except for 15 days, um, people would have just shook their head and, and said, there's absolutely no way that's going to happen. Um, well, in fact, when I started that, kind of what was said in July of 2013 here, but, but we did that. And I think that Colorado has changed the, the face of corrections, and I think in a, in, a, in, a, in a good way. I think the overuse of solitary is a tool that should have been taken out of the toolbox a long time ago. Here's why I've done all of this. Um, it's to try to lessen the number of victims. It's not because I'm this touchy-feely, give everything to the inmates. It's because um, what I'm doing, I believe, I truly believe, there's going to be less victims. And, you know, I've talked to my staff and we've debated this, you know, why did I pick 15 days? Well, and why did I pick four hours out instead of six or three or whatever? It's, 
I don't know. You know, I, I've asked psychiatrists at, at what point does anybody become mentally damaged when they're in involuntary solitude? What day does, does that happen? And of course, you get the answer you expect, which is it depends on the individual. But, you know, I, I happen to, it was an honor for me to be with the State Department um, at the UN in, in Africa and, and Vienna um, on rewriting the, the Mandela rules. And, you know, the 15 day, um, everything after that is torture became a, a subject of debate. And, and I started to, to pay attention to that. So I, I picked that as the, as the, the time, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the debate I've had with my staff is that everybody, um, becomes damaged. And the neuroscientists have said almost immediately your brain begins to misfire when you're in solitude involuntarily. And so I said there reaches a point where if they're getting worse when they went in there instead of better, then we're just doing that to make us feel better, but we're having a much more dangerous person come out unless we're gonna leave them in there for the rest of their lives. And, and so, you know, and then you gotta step back and go, hey folks, this is America. You know, we don't, we don't treat people like this in America. And, yeah. and so that's... Uh, yeah, I was in prison once, and they showed me a room, very nice room with a double bed TV, I mean, a regular bedroom. And, they, and I asked, what, what is this for? And they said, well, if someone loses a family member, if their mother dies, we allow them to come into this room for a few days uh, to grieve, which I thought was interesting, which I've never seen in our country. And when you talk about it, the response is, we don't coddle prisoners that way. And so they look at it as coddling, not as humanizing. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, you know, I mean, you really have to, have to think what... We're called the, the Department of Corrections, and there's a reason for that. I mean, people have made a, a mistake, and, and sometimes it's an absolutely outrageous, horrific mistake, but if our job is to correct that conduct, then we got to do things differently. If it's punishment, and, and in Colorado, they used to publicly flog inmates almost till 1950. Uh, that's how um, tough this system was. I mean, but if that's our job, then let's take away all the programming, let's take away all the counselors, and let's just lock them in these cells, and and we'll keep them in there. And but you know, when I was in Wisconsin, um, I took a group of Chinese dignitaries through one of our prisons, and they were at the level of like mayors and legislators, and there were maybe twenty or thirty of them, and we were in a conference room afterwards, and had a discussion and one of them made the statement, you know, this place looks just like a college campus. And, and in fact, it did with a fence around it. And I said, you know, I said, in America, we take away from them the greatest, largest thing we can take away, their freedom. And the room went silent and they understood exactly what I meant. And, you know, what more can you take away from someone than their, than their freedom in America. And how else more can you punish someone? I mean, that's, so just going to prison and I've, you know, we've got the minimum security and max and all that. I have never been in one of my facilities and walked out going, well, I wouldn't mind living there. 
I couldn't stand living there. They suck, every single one of them. And, and you know, I mean, so that's punishment enough. So just being there, um, to me, is, is enough. Then it's time to try and repair what's been damaged. Well said. Rick, thank you for your time and for being our guest. We really appreciate your insights. Yes, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Reimagining Prison Podcast, produced and sponsored by Prison Fellowship. Tell us what you think by rating and reviewing the Reimagining Prison Podcast on iTunes. To reach out with any other feedback or suggestions for future podcast guests, you can email us at reimaginingprisonpodcast at pfm.org. You will find this email address in the description for this episode as well. 